Hello, Portland. This is Daniel Lyman with the People of Portland podcast, where I interview impressive people of Portland. I'm trying that one out a bit. We'll see if that one sticks. Um, this, uh, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share how kind of obsessed I am with this new uh, Instagram handle or Instagram account. And when I say new, it's new to me. Um, this is the Portland Police Bureau Central NRT Bike Squad. Um, it's PBP, PPB Central Bike Squad. Um, and it really just kind of opened my eyes to how much they are dealing with every single day. I mean, I, I knew all this stuff, but then seeing them post every day about all the kind of stuff that's going on, all the like overdoses and all the intense calls they have to respond to just on bike is um, really, uh, really enlightening and interesting. So I encourage you to follow them if you want to learn more about what it's like to be a cop on a bike in Portland. Um, I love that we have the cops on bikes downtown. I think that that's wonderful. And I actually think we need more of that because it's a lot more relatable than a cop in a car. Um, I'll get to that in a later episode where I talk to bike, well, where I talk to some people that are big in the bike scene in Portland. Anyway, um, let's see here. Today we are talking to DJ Dick Hennessy, who, um, when I was first reaching out to people that I wanted to interview, um, this is somebody that I'd read about a ton of times on Willamette Week. He is uh, kind of Portland's preeminent premier DJ party promoter for strip clubs, essentially. Um, and I'm actually really proud of the fact that Portland has such a strong strip club community. Not that I go to strip clubs all the time, but I think it's one of the things that makes Portland interesting and unique. People that are very active in the stripping community, making it a, a safe and wonderful place for people to work and to go have fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, of course I do enjoy going to strip club with some friends every now and then it's a good time. So I was excited to talk to DJ Dick cause he does some really fun things. Plus his personal story is fascinating. It is, um, really, a really unique story. And he's a native Portlander who's, uh, grown up in Southwest and kind of left for a little bit, but came back and kind of took over the city with, in regards to this, um, we do talk about some heavy stuff. So there's a little content warning here if, um, talking about murder and, and violence is upsetting, then I wouldn't listen to this episode necessarily. He, um, he was involved in something that you will hear about in a little bit here. Um, but, uh, he was great to talk to really friendly guy, learned a lot about, uh, the industry that he's in and his own personal life. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode where I interview DJ Dick Hennessy. Do you prefer I call you Dick or DJ Dick Hennessy or what do you prefer? Whatever you want, man. Whatever's easier for you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I've done a little bit of research and I'm going to start asking you some questions if you're cool to just dive in here. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. Uh, I'm going to grab uh, my beverage real quick. In case I get yeah, yeah. Yeah, get comfortable. Been running around like crazy. Don't want to start. Uh, yeah. So you were born in Hood River, but right. you moved to Portland when you were three. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And you and actually you and I have something in common. You grew up in Southwest right, uh, right near the Alpenrose Dairy, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, I grew up in Hillsdale, so not far at all. So yeah, small were world. you like, yeah? Were you like off Shattuck or where about were you? Uh, I was off Illinois Street. Oh, okay. Shattuck. Um, I actually lived off Shattuck a little later on in my life too, but um, I nice. went to uh, height. Man, I'm trying to remember the name of the elementary school, but it was very briefly, and then I moved to Beaverton when I was about a uh, third grade. Oh, okay. Okay. So you were only in like Southwest for a little bit before you moved to Beaverton. Yeah. So what was that like? Tell me about what it was like uh, growing up in Southwest and then in Beaverton. How was that for you? Uh, Southwest, I mean, it was idyllic. You know, it was, yeah. um, I often say this a lot. I, you know, hope there's such a thing as reincarnation because I had the perfect childhood. Um, totally. 
I mean, Beaverton, Oregon in the mid to late 1980s, I mean, it didn't get more serene or more like... It's idyllic. (laughs) As a child growing up in that time period, there's really nothing more that you would want or, you know, possibly need in terms of... We had everything, you know, all the seasons. uh, Nintendo just came out. Everyone was rocking (laughs) bikes, playing baseball, collecting baseball cards. As far as being a kid, I, I cannot imagine a better experience than that or, you know, just environment to, to kind of grow up and kind of just start to reach your pre-adolescence and stuff. And was were you, like, tell me about your family, like both parents, siblings, one parent? Yeah, yeah. so I had a little sister, just two years younger than me, and uh, both okay. of my parents uh, were together at the time when we moved out here. And nice. uh, my dad was working for a Stash T company, and my mom um, was actually studying to become a, a CPA, an accountant. So, oh wow! Yeah. Oh cool. Okay, you say was, and then something changed. And then, then she graduated school and then became a CPA. Oh, got it. Oh, very cool. Very. But cool. back then, when I was, you know, I remember going to night school and, you know, having wow. various jobs and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. So then, when you moved to Beaverton, you were middle school. Oh, when I moved to Beaverton. I was in third grade, and I went to okay. Hyden Elementary, and then I ended up going to middle school at Highland Park Middle School. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, was going to, I was going to go attend Beaverton High School, and but we moved to Tigard uh, my uh, my sophomore year. And back then, middle school still had ninth grade in it. So right, 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 right. So it was all you kind of mixed up. Yeah. So what? What? Why the Why the move to Tigard from Beaverton? Uh, well, uh, where my dad worked, uh, Stash T, the headquarters was in Tigard, so it was closer okay. to where he worked. And it was um, yeah, Bull Mountain Tigard was a much better neighborhood. Uh, more high end. It was kind of an investment in terms of uh, real estate back then. Yeah. It wasn't as populated as now, and it was just an opportunity they saw, and just basically just to upgrade everything for us. Yeah. So, what was Tiger High like? Uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it was kind of rough at first <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I had a whole just core group of friends that I'd grown up with for virtually my entire childhood, and I was kind of uprooted from that. It just placed, you know, I didn't even get freshman year, so I was just placed into a brand new high school. Even though it wasn't that far away, it was completely, you know, another Totally different people. Yeah. Yeah. I had to kind of just reacclimate myself, and I didn't really know how to fit in. And at the time, I was, like, smoking weed, and that wasn't really the popular thing back then. Yeah. So I was kind of an outcast, and then uh, I got arrested for, you know, marijuana at the school. In high school? Yeah, yeah, in high school. So I kind of had to reinvent myself yet once again. And, and really, it all just boiled, uh, boiled down to I just wanted to be popular with kids and, you know, make friends and, you know. Like everybody in high yeah, school, right? Yeah, I was trying to <laughs> figure out a way to, to handle that. And I kind of went about things the wrong way, potentially, you know, at the time. Yeah. How did your parents feel about the arrest? Uh, they weren't happy about it, but <laughs> I mean, time, course, yeah. My, yeah, my parents, you know, grew up, they were hippies. They really weren't too concerned about marijuana. I had a really, you know, lackadaisical childhood in terms of I wasn't really forced like any kind of real heavy religion. Right. Um, I could listen to whatever music I want as a kid or uh, watch whatever movies, you know, I kind of was just yeah. uh, unstructured in terms of, you know, just being under like heavy control. So. When it was just me, you know, obviously they weren't pleased with the whole getting arrested at school and getting suspended and potentially expelled. But, you know, it could have been way worse in their eyes, I think, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I got my stuff in order and back together and I had to go to rehab for marijuana, which is kind of laughable nowadays. But uh, in high school, you went to rehab? Yeah, for, for, for weed. For wow. Weed yeah. Was, okay. 
was a stipulation I had to do it. Otherwise, I was going to get permanently expelled. So right. I didn't really have a right. choice. So I did it, and I took it serious. I, I quit smoking weed until college. So my wow. entire year, I was I was just drinking. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so then, did you after the like after that? Did you or were you a good student or did you ever care or? I mean, I was I was a decent student. I could have been way yeah. better. But again, my focus was just on you know, uh, honestly, just females. You know, being cool, yeah. being popular with ladies, and just you know, having an enriching high school experience, and just really, I had no idea what was going on in life. Everything just shifted. Everything right. was kind. Well, of, you know, you start you know puberty and become a, a teenager. Everything is just rapidly shifting and changing. Your whole world, as you know it, is evolving around you, and you're just trying to oh, kind yeah. of struggle to hold on and extensive things so i think that was what i was caught up in mostly well in this obviously we're going to get into this but uh like you you work in essentially you sell sex for a living um so i was <laughs> a part of part of it of course yeah. uh but i was curious if that is like when that became when that came, obviously you were pu- in like in puberty you were becoming more interested in sex like all of us are but i was curious was that something that came into your uh your mind is the idea of like uh, this is what i could do in the future i could be involved in strip joints or like selling, I don't know, selling sex in various ways for a living? Well, like, you know, back in the 80s, uh, when I was a kid, I used to steal like Playboy magazines and yeah. penthouse magazines. Classic. Store yeah. Washington Square. And yeah. we, you know, uh, we had like a little pencil box with all the best pictures cut out and we hid it in the forest. And, you know, I was always into watching like R-rated movies with, uh, you know, naked, half-naked women, stuff like of course. that. We understand yeah why that was or why I was so drawn to that, but uh, uh, for whatever reason I was. And then it kind of, my life kind of continued on that path the entire time uh, in one way or another to where yeah. I've got kind of just being drawn to just wanting to be around women and wanting to be popular with women and uh, just looking up to guys that had uh, the girlfriends and the, you know, the nice cars and things like that that attracted women. So my life kind of went in that direction. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know specifically what job I was going to do or uh, think that I was going to have a job that was going to be you know, directly with women like that. But uh, at right. the time, I knew that it was just something I was wildly interested in. Yeah. So, so yeah, early on, you were interested in it, not necessarily thinking about it as like, this is my career path. Yeah, I didn't so, think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember in high school, there was one young woman who decided to become a stripper, which is like a really big deal right after we turned 18. Everyone was like talking about it at that point. Like, Oh, can you oh, believe yeah. she went to go? Yeah. Um, so you went to U of O, right? Direct. Yes. Studied sociology. Yep. I uh, majored in sociology, minored in business administration. Nice. Nice. Yep. And is that what you, was that something that you were passionate about or just like fell into it? Like a lot of us do in undergrad or. Yeah. Well, basically, you know, I, I was barely accepted to college. Like my SAT okay. scores just, I had to do them twice. And the second time, I was like all hung over and it was a whole problem. I stayed up all night partying and I really didn't understand about why I was doing any of it, you know? like Yeah. Like why you were taking the SATs. Yeah. It was just something I had to do. I never like aspired to go to college. I never, you know, yeah. had a, a set path. I never had a career really even. I was chasing after. I was just kind of experiencing life. So when I was accepted to U of O, you know, I'd never been to Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, uh, I didn't even really know anyone that had been to college other than my parents. Yeah. And so I were they know. were they and they weren't big on college. They weren't like you. you no, know. no. I mean, they, yeah, they were. They were definitely. I mean, it was just it was generally understood that this was something that I was expected to do. And got it. Yeah. This is kind of the next step. Okay, you graduate high school, you're accepted yep. to college, then you go to college, and then after that, you know, assuming get a career, get a job. 
so next thing you know, like it's almost like I kind of snapped out of it, and I was just in a dorm room in Eugene, and like, what the what what, am, what is going on here? What am I? How doing did I get life? here? <laughs> I started off as a business major, and uh, I realized really quickly with the Charles Lindquist School of Business and and Yovos, the prerequisites alone are just ridiculously hard, you know. Yeah. And it's something I I definitely could have focused on and and uh, excelled in, but like the math requirements, a lot of the stuff kind of made it to where I realized I could either enjoy my time in college and, you know, have fun. Yeah. Or, or just buckle down and just focus completely on studying and stressing out about exams and uh, all this other stuff. And then, so I took the alternate road, uh, after a couple of business courses and yeah. a couple of math requirements, I think it was pre-calculus or whatever it was. I, was like, <laughs> I think, I'll, I think sociology doesn't sound like a bad idea. You know, I heard I could kind of just flow through and I could still, you know, still study on just, you know, a few touches of business here and there with, uh, you know, a business minor, you know, yeah. so I get a taste of accounting, economics, and things, things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I ended up becoming a sociology major and uh, just enjoying my time in college a lot more than I think I nice. would have been around. Of course, it kind of left me open for, you know, to get in trouble and uh, to get back into marijuana a little bit myself. A little so, bit or a lot? <laughs> a heavy, a heavy amount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, college, is, uh, it sounds like you partied pretty hard then. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had my fair share of uh, enjoying enjoying college and hanging out with people for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, that's you know that's where Animal House was filmed. It's kind of a legendary college party town. So I definitely had a stake in that, you know. Totally. I, I was never into fraternities or anything like that. I kind of just had my own lane. And had, like, did you know people from high school that went there? Or did you just kind of meet new, new people while you were in the dorms? I mean, there was, there was like a handful of people. That I knew, oh, okay. um, but it was the people that I didn't know that was down there. Uh, it was no one that I was really close with, you know. Got it. I just kind of knew of, and I never really hung out with those people. I, I, just, I, I mean, here we are again, three years after Tiger High School. I'm in another strange city, even further from Portland. Totally. Around a bunch of million people, I have no idea who any of them are. You know, right. no, no one knows anything about me, so I yeah. essentially have to reestablish myself again. Multiple <laughs> times. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, right, especially I while you're a teenager. Yeah, it, I know that it, it, I'm, I'm fairly positive everyone has to go through something like that at all, especially when you go to college totally. in a different city uh, than you grew up in. But uh, yeah, it's it definitely, I think, kind of led me on the path that I ended up on for sure, you know, once yeah. again. So then what, uh, what came about after school? Did you stay in Eugene or did you move back up here at that point? Uh, so I graduated uh, college 2001, I believe, and moved back up to Portland. Uh-huh. But I still was keeping, I still had a lot of friends and connections in Eugene, so I'd be going back, kind of back and forth from Portland to Eugene at the time, just trying yeah. to get my footing, you know, in terms of what am I going to do with my life, you know, at yeah. the time. I really had no idea at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, most most of us at 21 have no idea what the heck we're tell doing. You, oh, yeah, once you get a college degree, you know, then it will all just fall into place. But, like, you get a sociology <laughs> degree. Even if I had a business degree, honestly. Like it's still completely uphill battle at that point, you know. And yeah. I, again, I didn't really realize about any. You know, I was just so kind of in my own world about the whole thing. I never had like a guidance counselor or anyone really in my corner telling me what to do. You know, even uh, my parents at the time, like I think my yeah, junior year of college, they divorced. So it was oh, like okay, citizens, so they were focused on all that, and then I was focused in my world. So it was like I didn't really. I was just kind of, I guess, just floating, trying to. I was going with the tide, essentially, you know? Yeah. 
So when you moved back up to Portland, then your parents were not living together. They were divorced. No, no. They, yeah, they were separated. They both had their own places. It was, just, yeah, everything was just completely different. Like, yeah. Every stage of my life, it was just reacclimating to something completely new and alien to me and uh, just adapting to that somehow. Uh, and sometimes I mean, more than others. Yeah. And I know this is kind of personal, so you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but like, were they talking to each other or were you like in an intermediary? Was it a bad they, divorce? They had waited uh, until me and my sister were in college before they uh, finalized the divorce. So, yeah. um, which, you know, I totally, I respect that. You know, I, I'm sure it would have been way more difficult had I been in high school or middle school when they got divorced. So, it actually made it a lot easier, but it was just, um, it, it was just weird, you know, because they were both off in their own worlds and I was just kind of regaining to know them again as individuals, right. just being a, you know, cohesive unit. So did you move back out to Tigard or were you in Portland proper? I moved to, I moved to Portland. I moved to a friend's house in Portland and uh, just kind of nice. continued my, <laughs> uh, my old ways. Uh, I was <laughs> involved in the music industry and uh, marijuana mm-hmm. sales at the time. So I kind of was just focused on that and just, you know, continuing to live life to the fullest, so to speak. That's how you were making money was like selling weed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How long yeah, did that I, last? I, the what? How long did that last? Uh, it, I had a really, um, a very successful operation for about, say, f- four years, four years okay. until 2003 is when everything okay. kind of evaporated on me. But um, yeah, I was supporting myself very well, and uh, I, I had a lot of plans in terms of uh, I had a, a structure and kind of a direction I was going within the music industry to launder money and proceeds from marijuana sales, and uh, everything was kind of coming to fruition faster than I anticipated as well. So yeah, it felt, it felt correct, even though I was just kind of spiraling into kind of a, a crazy world. <laughs> Figuring it out as you go along, like most twenty-year-olds. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um... What were you doing in the music industry? Like, can you get specific about that? I mean, I've read a bit about it, but yeah, no. I, so I was a I was a rap artist and producer. So I was just yeah. producing music, and 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 my thought at the time was back then, you could create your own record company, right? Which I yeah. did, and you could create your own product. You know, so you could buy your own studio time. You could purchase and develop your own marketing campaign, uh, and and artists. You could sign your own artists, or just you know make yourself your main artist. Yeah, and then put out any kind of product that you wanted. And then if you press up a physical product or CDs, it's a lot different than it is nowadays. I mean, back then you actually had to buy music. Right. Then I could take that to uh, various record stores uh, and then use the money that I had through, you know, marijuana operations and then purchase my own music. You see where I'm going at? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, of course. Kind of yeah. a weird period of time where that was still an option. You know, right now that's not really conducive. You can't buy like a, thousand copies of your music on itunes from the same- <laughs> you, you can't you can't launder money that way yeah back then, it was, back then it was very viable and then if you were able to get enough of a buzz the record stores would just continue to purchase your albums on consignment and eventually if you get a distribution deal then everything is done for you and you can still purchase your own things right just uh, everything is on paper and then that money is completely washed and taxable and uh you know it was, it was just kind of a I was seeing it. It was tangible. I was seeing people do things like that successfully, and I was doing right. it, trying to do it successfully. And uh, and on top, and then on top of that, if you if you generate enough of buzz, then you can start getting paid to do shows and sell merchandise. On top of that, and then you can invest into other projects. And I just saw like a, a large light at the end of the tunnel at the time. So I was 
uh, in the middle of just buying a lot of very expensive uh, recording equipment, studio equipment, wow. and making some very heavy connections within the recording industry. And everything was just starting to congeal and come together very nicely for me. So you're a hustler. You just yeah, like, you, yeah. figured, you figured all this out. You just understood. Okay, this is how I this is how I make money with weed. This is how I launder the money. This is how I increase my my like status in the music world. Yeah, absolutely. It was just like a game or a puzzle. You know, I had all these pieces, and yeah. I was studying. You know, unfortunately, you know, there was no class in college. But in college, when I was out of school, I was in school. You know, essentially. Yes. Yeah. That was my uh, postgraduate. You know, campaign. <laughs> this is your grad school. This yeah. is you. <laughs> yeah. This is impre- I'm impressed. So, and this is where, if I mean, I don't know your timeline exactly, but from what I've read, this is kind of where things fell apart for a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, late in 2003, I was arrested for marijuana possession. Uh, yeah. uh, basically, I was the subject of an investigation because uh, I was getting a little too lackadaisical with things. And uh, so, like what? Let's get into it if that's okay with you. Like what? Yeah, yeah that's fine. Um, well, uh, so. Eventually, I got to a point where it wasn't about selling weed as much as it was about collecting money. Yep. You get to a point where you have all the weed you could sell, but then you need to have people, you know, it's more important to them to have people to purchase it. Right. So then you uh, take it and give as much as you can to people and in hopes that they'll swallow it and then regurgitate money for you. Yep. So my shift went from, you know, sales to collections. And when you shift to collections and you're a certain dollar amount or magnitude, um, there's a lot of uh, additional risk that comes along with that, you know, in terms totally. of people not, you know, because let's say hypothetically someone owes me money uh, and they get robbed or they get arrested or they just lose a bunch of my gambling or whatever it is, or they just stop liking me or they have a problem in their relationship and they're not worried about me or whatever. You know, I still need to figure out a way to try to collect that money. And of course, make right. And, it could and were you using like it. aggressive, aggressive means to collect that money? I mean, I would, you know, I would, I would use passive aggressive means. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite know I what say, that means. Well, I mean, I would, I would try, to, I would try to use the the path of least resistance, you know, just to try to keep things going and not to have problems with anyone, you know. But inevitably, you know, when you're pestering someone to give the money that they owe you, right, um, it's going to be hard feelings. And eventually, when there's hard feelings like that, and then that particular person might uh, get arrested and have an opportunity to provide information on someone that they don't like anymore. Ah, so that's how you got arrested, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got pulled over in Eugene, just making my rounds. Luckily, I didn't have that much stuff on me. I just had like a half pound of weed. Okay. Um, But I got pulled over for no reason. They said a vehicle matching my description shot an old lady in the face with a pellet gun, which I did not, and I didn't have a pellet gun. Right. So and they found weed and it was enough to where it wasn't federal, but it was enough to where I was facing significant jail time or prison time. Damn. And uh, so I got out of the weed game immediately and then started getting my life in order. And my lawyer advised that I get a regular job and check myself into rehab again, you know, to minimize the amount of prison time that I received. Of course. So I got delivering pizzas at Pizza Hut. Um, Which I bet was a big step down from the amount of money you were making. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll never forget. Uh, I think it was the first paycheck I got. I, I worked at the Pizza Hut in 82nd and Gleason. Okay. I went from you know having all this money, disposable income, traveling, networking, working constantly, um, just living a fast life to delivering pizzas. And then uh, after two weeks, I received my first paycheck. And uh, that, I think it was like 300 something. I remember <laughs> correctly. I'm not sure, but I was like, 
man, I would make more than this in one transaction, you know? Totally. Totally. Uh, then, uh, honestly, I grew to, as things went on, um, I grew to kind of realize like, you know, my life would have been so crazy, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad just to be the top delivery guy for pizza hut and have yeah. a girlfriend and just kind of settle down and just like, stay out play of it straight for a little bit. Yeah. Just, or just forever, you know, just, yeah. I realized that I've been through so much, you know, and I had so many close calls and it was, I was just fortunate even just to be alive and, you know, to be healthy and to be right. free at the time. So I was kind of just, uh, you know, I, I feel like anything I put my mind to, I try to do it to the best of my ability. So I became employee of the month and things were going really good for me at Pizza Hut. Damn, and then really? I got, arrested, I got arrested at Pizza Hut I'm delivering a pizza because I was out on uh, my own recognizance. I wasn't out on bail or anything like that, but they were, they were investigating me and following me and watching uh -huh. me trying to get other people wrapped up. And I just went away from everything and just washed my hands of it. So they eventually got fired, tired of that, filed a secret indictment, and then literally pulled me over as I was delivering a pizza to a hotel over by uh, 205 and it took me to jail. It was my first time ever going to jail, actually. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I had to bail out. And luckily, I was able to make it to a mandatory pizza hut meeting the next day, the next morning. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to have a job, you know? Wait, you went to jail the night before, and your priority was making sure you got to the Pizza Hut meeting. The yeah, it was morning. mandatory. You are employee of the month. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I earned that for real. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I didn't know. You know, I just I self bailed. I managed to make it there in time. And, you know, I, I wasn't really truthful as to why I got arrested. You know, I kind of blamed it on something else. And uh, they let me continue to work there. And, uh, yeah, so Pizza Hut didn't know about your past. No, no. They just knew okay. I was graduated from college. I, I never really understood why they didn't like question why I was trying yeah. to work there of all places. You know, I had yeah. a pretty significant degree and, you know, no yeah. issues, no criminal record at the time. And, uh, yeah, they were quick to hire me. They so, just were excited to have somebody deliver pizza. They didn't care. No, nah, yeah. they didn't care at all. As long as I showed yeah. up, everything made the dough. It was fine. But, uh yeah, so I, I got out. I was on bail, and uh, you know, everything was kind of starting to crash down around me. Like, uh, yeah. I was hoping maybe I could, re, you know, be unscathed and and still kind of just go back to a regular life and maybe get everything back together and rebuild everything again and reinvent myself again. And uh, while that happened, or while I was attempting to do that, I was out on bail, waiting trial, and anticipating doing uh, you know, a somewhat lengthy prison sentence for marijuana. Which How long ridiculous. were you anticipating? How long were you thinking you were going to be there? It could have been up to five years. Um, oh, shit. And I had a horrible lawyer at the time, Eugene. Um, so I wasn't feeling very confident about things. Yeah. So they had me red-handed, you know, and there's nothing I could really do about it. Right. You were caught um, with weed. It was, yeah. Yeah, I had I had more, I had enough with, intent. you know, they had delivery on me because of the amount that was in my vehicle. And yeah. They knew about, you know, they didn't have like a whole huge conspiracy thing on me but they had enough to where i was they knew what was up i was gonna have to go away for a while most likely yeah but so while i was waiting for that and just getting everything together and out on bail uh, i was put in a position where i was arrested for murder and had to actually so the Red reddit talks about that a little bit um yes, your name yeah, is Reddit is not the most accurate with that at all. Of course. No, Reddit's not the most accurate with anything. But uh so talk to me about that. Arrested for murder. That's a that's a big that's a big deal. Yeah, 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 it definitely is. Um so again I was out on bail and uh I was uh, living with a friend of mine. I had taken him in and we were uh we had been working on music together. We were okay. really good friends. But he had kind of uh started spiraling 
uh, with drugs and alcohol and uh, just he had some psychological issues as well. Okay. And uh, on one particular night, he kind of went out the deep end and attempted to kill me and attacked me. And I was able to react in self-defense and I ended up shooting him and killing him. And so I was arrested with murder subsequently. Uh, and so obviously I'm out on bail at the time. And then yeah. they compensate that with this. So it's just pretty much the biggest mess you could imagine for me. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> How that's a, I mean, that's really intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did it, uh, I'm just curious, like how much did that affect you killing your friend? How much did um, that? You know, I, I, I got asked that a lot. Um, basically sure. people are like, Oh man, what were you thinking when you were in jail and this, this, and this? Cause I went to, you know, the second I was in uh, the justice center downtown, everyone was telling me, Oh, you're not going to get out. You know, Oregon's not a self-defense state. Right. It doesn't matter what happened. Um, you know, you're done. And I just didn't feel that way. I, I, I felt like this isn't how it's going to end for me, you know? Yeah. And on top of that, I really did genuinely feel like I was in a position where I was fighting for my life. So if I'm in a jail cell, like eating Doritos, like wiggling my toes, like watching TV and stuff, uh, to me personally, that was a lot better than being dead or like severely injured. Right. So right. I I kind of I kind of had that that mentality about it. Fortunately, you know, a lot of other people. I know my mom was very concerned for my mental well-being at the time, but I handled it really well in retrospect. Yeah. And um, you know, when your back is against the wall, all you all you can do is fight. So I just I knew in my heart that what I did was right, and I was not in the wrong in the situation. You mean like defending yourself there? You yeah, were oh yeah, absolutely. You were like, there was nothing here that I did wrong. I was trying to protect myself. Yeah. 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 Basically, what the what the district attorney's office was telling me was that. Oh, well, you should have just died or almost died. And then, you know, like you should not have done this. You know, you should have, you should have wow. seen if you were going to die first, like 100%. Before, before you defend yourself to this degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a certain, like, you shouldn't have reacted when you thought you were going to die. You should have reacted when you were almost dead, you know, type of thing. Right, right, right. Which is, yeah. How, I mean, maybe this is an intense question to ask, but like, how does it feel to shoot some? I've never shot somebody. So yeah. how, does the, how does that feel? I mean, um, it's just a feeling of like, uh, basically imagine feeling completely helpless. Yeah. But feeling completely safe. Does that make sense? Like with having the gun, you knew that you were going to be okay. Well, no, not necessarily that. Cause you know, you watch movies and stuff like that, you know, and the reality of actually shooting someone in real life versus like what you, what we're brought up seeing on television or, you know, yeah, fantasizing about, you know. Uh, right. It's completely different. But How so? Well, just like, you know, a TV, if someone gets shot, they like fly across the room. Right. You know, in reality, it's like a hot knife through butter, you know, is how a bullet reacts to someone to where you yeah. can't even tell if someone's been shot or not, you know, in right. real time. Right. So, yeah, basically, um, I don't really know if I had a feeling. It was just more of a, just a sense of relief that I was, I had survived and was able to escape, you know. Yeah. So I didn't have time to compartmentalize uh like how it feels like if they're you know yeah yeah just, totally it's just kind of a feeling of like uh yeah again you know being being helpless being cornered being yeah. in a position to where uh it's you or them and then you survive that somehow and he was like attacking you yeah yes he was yeah you had to, you did what you had to do yeah yeah wow that's like a that's a crazy part of your story huh yeah <laughs> and that's <laughs> So part of my story that uh, when I began my career and kind of my rebirth 
and uh, working in the strip club industry, I just kind of left behind, you know, yeah. I didn't, I know some people would be impressed by it or think it's cool or whatever like that, but I didn't want to use that as some kind of uh, stepping stone or some yeah. kind of people to respect me or like me. I kind of wanted to just start from scratch and, you know, I didn't hide that, you know, I didn't like try to bury that or keep that away from people, but I didn't, you know, I wouldn't go and just broadcast that information to anyone, you know, but I, right. but I left, I mean, you know, I'm obviously leaving breadcrumbs around, you know, I'm leaving my real name and, you yeah. know, what do you, what is your real do you mind me what is your real name by the way my real name is Matthew Lisicki. Oh, okay that's right I did read that I just Lisicki yeah. is Polish the little fox <laughs> nice um, do most people call you Dick or do they call you Matt or Matthew Dick Dick really is that what you're kind of at different at different stages of my life I had different nicknames you know so yeah depending on what someone calls me it's when they when they met me pretty much it's kind of interesting what do your parents call you Matt for sure yeah, or Matthew. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but anyway, so you didn't go to prison for this. You were, or did you? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was in jail. I was bouncing around from uh, Justice Center in Monoma County to Inverness. Uh-huh. And then I was in transport because I was still fighting two cases simultaneously. I was fighting my drug charge right. in Lane County. So I would be transported to Lane County. Right. And then back up and... Um, so I, that whole thing went for about 100 days, and I was actually um, granted bail, which was unheard of at the time. I was granted a quarter-million-dollar bail in Monoma County. And remember, I was out on bail for the other thing. Right. $50,000 bail for the marijuana thing. And uh, so I, I was approved for bail, but then they're still holding on to me. They didn't want to let me go because they didn't really know how to treat you know someone with right. my kind of charges. You know, I might be a flight risk or all that. I was going to say, there, it's always flight risk in that situation. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, basically, we had to just, you know, work really hard. I, I was able to get some really quality attorneys in Portland. Um, and then I had my family behind me and, and some of my friends behind me that still believed in me. And yeah. with that structure and with that support group, I was able to get bailed out. Nice. And I was able to be on house arrest for about three years before I finally went to trial. Wow, three years. Three, yeah, three years of house arrest. What happened was um, one of my attorneys had gotten um, uh, cancer. He had gotten, uh, I don't remember what kind of cancer it was, prostate cancer. Oh. Yeah. That had, we had to delay trial for that. And then um, another one of my attorneys had a death penalty case, so that took precedence over mine. So then we had to push back. And then I think the DA had something to occur on that too, so we had to push back for that. Wow. So literally I was just sitting there for three years on the most strict level of house arrest there is imaginable on closed street supervision. So you could um, not leave the house whatsoever. Well, over time, I was able to get more and more freedoms. You know, I okay. tried to prove myself, but it was pretty rough. Uh, when I was That's first brutal. on house arrest, I wasn't allowed to see anyone really at all wow. or leave. And then I was able to start leaving to go to rehab for marijuana. <laughs> For the second time. Yeah. The, the third time. Oh, third time, right? Yeah. <laughs> High school and then yeah, Pizza Hut. I was doing it and. What's funny is Pizza Hut, I was doing it, and I uh, was taking Valium and drinking and, like, Xanax and stuff like that. But I wasn't smoking weed, and I had a dirty UA. And I was like, they were like, oh, man, you had a dirty UA. I'm like, man, I'm paying you guys to be here. Just test me for just weed. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, so this time I was completely sober, and uh, it was my only time to get the house. And then uh, I was able to take some courses at PCCT so oh, I'd get cool. out more. And I'd get permission to go work out and go to the gym and play basketball so I'd get out more. And I was able to get permission 
after like a couple of years to go out to like the movies or out to dinner with my parents or friends and things like that. So you could have more of a life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you could call it that, yeah. I mean, more of a life than yeah. staying in the house the whole time. Absolutely. So, more, yeah. A little yeah. more taste. But uh, yeah, three years uh, with that hanging over my head and there was no guarantee I was going to beat the case at all. And yeah. it was the most serious charges you can imagine. So uh, it definitely took a toll on me, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I don't know how that wouldn't affect your mental health at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely did. And after uh, I was obviously found not guilty, um, and it was ruled self defense, and it did change the self defense statute in the state of Oregon. So other people have been able to have that the luxury of kind of that set in precedence in their particular cases. Your case was the one that changed things. It started, yeah. It changed. It changed the basically the statute was kind of non-existent in Oregon. Uh huh. And uh, my case set precedent in terms of uh, just when people are allowed to kind of defend themselves, you know, in a life or death situation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, other states like Florida have the stand your ground laws yep. and things like that, but Oregon doesn't have anything like that at all. So at that point, you have to kind of grasp at um, other cases that have been successful in right. defending people. And it, I think, if I remember correctly, it had been almost 100 years since the last time someone had beat a murder charge. On self-defense in Monoma County. Um, Holy crap! It'd been a while. So yeah, there was been a bunch of legal stuff that was told afterwards, but it's, it's kind of and a blur now. You have made your mark on Portland and Oregon at large in, in a variety of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways wow. people don't know about. It. I mean, even right now, you know, I'm connected to a ton of people in Portland that are very uh, important to the structure and just the cool factor of Portland, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so found not guilty. How long was the trial? Just out of curiosity, was that? Uh, trial was uh, like seven days. Oh, okay. So this wasn't a long, drawn-out trial. Um, no. Well, it, it was, but it wasn't. I feel like it might have been 10 days. Uh, I know I could Google the... You could Google right. the... I mean, it's public I, record. I said the specific amounts. But it, it was definitely... Uh, it wasn't like a crazy long trial, but it wasn't super short either it was definitely over yeah. a week if i remember correctly i was on yeah took the stand to testify my own defense and that was like a day and a half just that alone holy so. crap that's intense yeah yeah it is wow yeah you got the, the victim's family looking at you the entire time you have the da actively trying to discredit you and take away your life and the only person that can keep that from happening is yourself and no pressure right yeah, yeah. Oh, holy cow but it, you know, it takes the edge off of everything that I've done since then. Because right, nothing else a big deal. Nope, it really yeah. isn't. Wow. So after that, that's when the, in your words, you said kind of like reinvention of yourself happened. Is that right? That's when you kind of yep. figured out what else yeah. you wanted to do. Afterwards, again, here we go again. You know, I have no idea, no idea at all. Well, I'm, How old were you at that point? Uh, I was twenty-seven. Okay. Yeah. I was arrested, yeah, I was arrested for murder when I was twenty-four, and then uh, I was twenty-seven when I was released. And, uh, you know, all my clothes were out of style. I just, I was done with the music business. I had given all my equipment to a friend of mine who's now a famous producer. Um, and and they tried to use my music against me in, in trial. So I was just completely turned off on the, yeah. the whole thing. And I wasn't going to go back to dealing, dealing weed or dealing drugs because I had already been convicted of that. So I didn't want to be foolish. Smart. Yeah, that was smart of you. <laughs> I remember talking to my mom. She wanted me to get a job at Fred Meyer, <laughs> you know. And I was like, I'm not, they're not going to hire me. Right. And Pizza Hut wouldn't hire you back. 
You're like, I was employee of the month. I deserve yeah. to be. You want yes. me back here. So. December 2023 in the blizzard, I was delivering pizzas and walking them to the houses. My car couldn't pick it in the road. Like I could, I'm, I should be able to work at pizza the rest of my life. Yeah, right. You've you've earned your stripes there. That's. Yeah. <laughs> where did you get inspiration for what to do next? How, where, how did it come to you? Well, so uh, during my time uh, before any of my legal problems, I used to spend a lot of time at a, a strip club in Portland called the Boom Boom Room, uh, which was on Boom Boulevard. Yep. And a good friend of mine was the head DJ there, and he was legendary DJ at the time. And um, yeah, you've spoken about him before in other podcasts. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, Taiwan was his name, and um, yeah, it was just a magical place. And uh, the night I was acquitted, I went there. You know, I, I don't think I was supposed to because I wasn't supposed to still be drinking. I was on probation <laughs> for a couple of years afterwards for the weeds thing still, but. You know, I'm sure they make an exception if I had gotten in trouble for that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> a little celebrating, as you can imagine, after winning the Super Bowl for my life. Of course, yeah. Uh, but you know, I'd, I'd, my heart had always been like in the, in those places, in that place specifically, because you know, when all was said and done, I was done working and making money. I would go there to have fun and yeah, you know, hang out with my friends. And I was really into music. That was the place to hear the good music in Portland back then. And um, I, I felt like my genetics were kind of in, integrated into that club itself. So I had yeah. an opportunity to, to fill in and start DJing there uh, just on Sunday nights and fill in from my friend Taiwan. And uh, so I took it and ran with it. And um, I saw it as an opportunity where I could be the number one strip club DJ in Portland or the world. You know, I, yeah. I didn't know how I was going to do it exactly, but I knew I had um, – you know, experience on the mic. I had a good mic cadence and mic presence. I had experience promoting myself, yep. uh, creating myself into a product. Um, and I had experience uh, just being at strip clubs in general and knowing what the people like and, you know, what the people want to go and spend their money doing. Totally. So I could just take all that together and emulate that and create something uh, magical. But I realized rather quickly that, um, being the best strip club DJ in Portland, you're not going to get a lot of money doing that. You know, it's a small market. Yeah. Yeah. So some people might think you're cool, and uh, you know, might get some high fives and stuff. But in reality, you know, I, I thirsted for more than that. Totally. So um, I was able through some through some experiences to kind of upgrade and move towards event promotions because I felt like that was the next level and the final level, in my opinion. And um, yeah. I've taken that and ran with that. It, uh, truly, to, to say the least. So that's been now, it's been, what, like 15 years of doing that or, or so? Yeah, uh, coming up on 16 years. I started yeah. November uh, 2007. And um, yeah, November 2023 will be 16 years this year. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, and so you just kind of like built your empire, as it were, over yeah. time. Yeah. And you when really, what's that? So one brick, one brick at a time by hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really made yourself kind of like part of the party promotion. Like you, I see you on a lot of the flyers and stuff. Was that a purposeful choice? Was that, um, was you know, your face plus like obviously women in bikinis and all kinds of stuff? Is like that your like vision of what you wanted this to look like, or where did that, where does that come from? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it came from my time promoting music. You know, when, you, when you're a rap artist or even a producer. Yep. Um, you're on the album cover, you know, your name is on there. Yeah, you do you're, you're there. It's a name around the flyer for the show. 
I really took a lot of what I learned in the music industry and kind of spliced it with the adult industry. Um, for instance, it's small. It might seem small, but uh, in my events, you know, I have VIP passes, like yep. badges, like you would uh, if you were ever backstage at a show, you know? Yep. Yeah. Early on when I was a kid and I would be going to shows and I would get a VIP badge and I would be backstage with my artist around the tour bus. It was like the coolest thing ever. And, Totally. You know, years later, I would go through my box of knickknacks, and I would see that VIP badge, and I would have all these, you know, this rush of memories, and just it would bring a smile to my face. So Sounds I wanted good. to get that, and to this day, I still have VIP badges and judge badges, and really, really expensive ones. You know, they, they yeah. cost six dollars per one, just to That's... produce. And then, you know, everyone gets them, and they have something to remember the the evening by. That's awesome. I love that. I want to, um, I made a little list here of, cause I really enjoy the names of your various events. They, <laughs> they make me laugh a lot. And for people that aren't familiar with events, I thought I would, uh, just name some of these. You just had a uh, Count Dicula's Vampentine's Hotel, which was your, which I wasn't able to go to, unfortunately. Uh, but it was your uh, Valentine's day, like stripper themed haunted house, essentially. Is that how you describe it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that name, Count Dickula's Vampentine's Hotel. Um, you've had Dickie Wonka's Haunted Strip Club Factory <laughs> um, for a while. I don't know if you're still doing this. You'll have to tell me. You're still. Are you doing the Vagina Pageant? I am. Yeah, I'm, uh, we're going on the 12th annual this year. There you go, 12th annual. And, of course, online I've seen it referred to as the Vag Padge. Um, so that's a great name there. Of course, you've got Pirates of the Caribouti, <laughs> which is, and this one, this one's my personal favorite. It it makes me laugh to no end. How like funny and stupid it is at the same time. Strippo de Mayo, <laughs> that one is <laughs> pretty great. It makes me. It's that one again. It's it's uh it's it's stupid in the best possible way. So I like that one a lot. Um, is this was this also part of your your like grand scheme is to come up with these like names that also like sometimes involve you your name like you know count uh count uh count dicula and is that was that part of it was this all thought about or are you just kind of making this up as you go along? No, no, it's all yeah, it's all part of the product. You know, it's the yeah. product. It has to be. You have to. Just in the name, it should be able to tell you exactly what it is and who's doing it. You know, I think uh, all the majority of the haunted houses I did, it was, you know, my name in it, Dickie Wonka, yep. Dick Hefner's Haunted Strip Club Mansion. <laughs> yes. Dick and Matt's Haunted Strip Club Time Machine, you know, yeah. uh, the list goes on and on. Um, and, you know, even even more so to where the vagina pageant, you know, I have the vagina mobile, you know. Yes, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Tell us about the vagina mobile. <laughs> so the second year second year I did the vagina pageant it was a big turning point in my career um, it was my first full page ad in exotic magazine nice it's my first uh, which is funny to think about now because I've done everything I do as full page at least in exotic yeah um, it was my first time doing a major event downtown it was the Club Rouge which was oh, brand yeah. new downtown it was just like I jumped directly from a hole in the wall booming room to like the center stage you know totally the main stage in Portland yep so I was thinking, you know, I, I got to take this to the next level on, on every angle possible. The one thing I thought about is like, okay, we've got the flyers, the posters. I had a friend that was doing kind of customizations for cars and like decals and like tinted windows. And I was like, what would happen if I just put like on the back, like a sticker on the back of my car that said second annual vagina beauty pageant and then had yeah. my uh, Facebook link and my name on there and then like the date and the club. And I was like, that might be a really good idea, you know, because yeah. people are every day looking. And this was 
14 years ago, something like that now. Ooh, but I was like, yeah. going around looking for something cool to take a picture of and post on the social media. So let me give them something cool, you know? Yeah. And it was just the smallest, like most uh, innocuous and conspicuous just sticker. And uh, I put it on the back of my car, just the back window. That was it. It wasn't any, anything as extravagant as you see today. It came from very humble beginnings. But uh, it hit like gangbusters. Like everyone was freaking out, taking pictures, talking about it. The town was buzzing. All over the internet. Yeah. Little thing. And uh, we did it. Uh, we actually filmed a little reaction video. It's still on YouTube. You can see people reacting in real time to just that yeah. sticker. And... Um, and I remember the first day I did it, uh, when I when I came home later that night, I was just like, you know, it was parked in my driveway, and I had like a HOA and stuff where I was staying at the time. So I was, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, what the hell did I do? Like, I'm going to wake up. There's going to be a brick through my window. Like, <laughs> I, I might have been pushing it too far this time, you know. But I, I really thought about it a lot before I did it, so I just I ended up running with it, and it was the best thing I've ever done marketing-wise, I think, personally, in terms of. You know, I'm taking, I'm turning everyone, all the people of Portland into my promoters for me. Right, right. Yeah. And I looked at it like now, especially when you look at it, it's like a race car, you know, like NASCAR, sponsor logos on it and the professional graphic design and various colored wraps and big rims. Um, You know, it's just one of those things like, it's almost as if human beings are like computers and the vagina mobile is like a computer virus that I program. You know, no matter where you're at, because it's big and it's pink now and it's sparkly, you you don't have a choice. You're forced to look at it. You're going to see it. You're forced to look at it. You're forced to actually think about it objectively. Yeah. And, you know, if it comes down to it, pull the phone out and take a picture of it and then post it and send it to people. And, and it's almost against your will in a way, you know. And that's kind of how I looked at it. It was just like I'm just hacking into, you know, the central nervous system of Portland. This is you being a hustler again. You're finding ways to even have something go viral, even not just like on the internet, but in the city of Portland here. Yeah, just innovate, innovate, and continue to innovate everywhere I can possibly think of. So let's talk about, uh, you know, obviously you work in strip clubs. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yeah, I do. T- talk and to me what you feel of, about that. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I consider myself the biggest feminist. Um Basically, the first year I did the vagina pageant in Boom Boom Room, and I was promoting it, the reactions I was getting, and when I would tell people about it, uh, I think the general kind of thought process was I was going to be some guy. You'd come, and it'd be me like in a trench coat jerking off in the corner, you know, and it'd be this right. horrible thing. And obviously, it's nothing could be further from the truth. But the second year, uh, there was actually a person that came in who was a journalist, um, named Cat Snacks, and she wrote a whole write-up on the vagina pageant. It was on a website called Tits and Sass. I'm sure it's still up there. And that uh, had went viral online and got picked up by Fashionista and a lot of mm-hmm. other things. But essentially, her perspective, and I didn't know her at the time at all, was that the vagina pageant was actually empowering for women. You know, And I, I completely agreed. Um, the vagina pageant was my first competition, my first event that I ever did. You know, Yeah started with that and the reason i started with that is and you know we go back to the beginning of this interview uh me growing up constantly all i wanted to do was be around women you know and look at i was just drawn to women and i couldn't even explain why you know i didn't know anything about how vaginas worked when i was like in fourth grade you know right right totally i think it was just you would see on like an r-rated movie it was just a tuft of hair you know (laughs) i didn't know what it was i was the hair, just that area right there was just magical to me. I couldn't put my finger on it. And uh, 
as I got older and, uh, you know, as I had the thing, time to think about it constructively, um, in reality, vaginas are the most important thing in the universe. They're essentially a stargate to another dimension, you know. Um, women in general are the most important things and the most beautiful things in the universe. You know, you don't look at Saturn or a nebula or even like a sunset, you know, as beautiful and you know, inspiring as all those things are, beautiful women by far, mm -hmm. uh, in my personal opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Far, far surpasses that. So my thought process was if I could encompass all that and just really kind of appreciate all that, similar to like Mardi Gras or Carnival or, you know, one of these great celebrations. Uh, and then create essentially a great celebration of womanhood. And then on top of that, create a great celebration of womanhood to where these women make a bunch of money. You know, we, we celebrate them by showering oh. them money and trophies and gifts and things like that. You know, um, it's about the most feminist activity I could think of, you know, personally. Have you had, have you experienced either politically or in the press, have you experienced pushback as being anti-feminist or as being anti-women? Never. Uh, surprisingly, yeah. not at all. Uh, yeah. I think it's the way that I go about things. Um, yeah. Personally, I just, I don't come, uh, I don't really come across like that. You know, I'm not really a womanizing type of guy. You know, I'm not the disparaging women or talking negatively about women. And I never have. Um, yeah. I just don't feel that way in my soul, you know. I, I yeah. completely just I love women to death, honestly. All, all the way from my fiance to my my mother to my sister to my nieces yeah. across the board. I think the women are the most uh, important and impactful things in the universe, and I'll forever feel that way. I think that there is, you know, third wave feminism was about owning sex and about saying like this part of sex is power here. Is yeah. that I guess that maybe that was more second wave. I'm getting my waves, my waves of feminism confused here. But uh, third wave is really the integration of it. But still, as part of feminism, it is that uh, using their bodies to be powerful people to own the power that they have, and in your case, owning the power that they have and uh, taking advantage of capitalism, and, you know, making money off that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. we're talking about an industry that, uh, by all means, stereotypically takes advantage of women. You know, potentially. Totally. Fame, I mean, historically speaking, is not the most friendly industry towards women. And so, you know, I'm talking about turning that on its head. Yeah. And providing women a platform to create a name for themselves, create a brand for themselves, um, create a method to succeed and basically where the sky's the limit, you know. Yeah. And not doing something that they're not comfortable with and not doing, you know, instead of feeling like ashamed for who you are or belittled by society that's trying to oppress you or trying to look down upon you or, you know, disparage you to sell, to turn it completely on its head and celebrate it and make it something to be proud of and something to be, um, admired. And, you know, but basically there's people out there when they see the car, they see the word vagina, they see a guy driving it, you know, they're upset by that. Yep. There's a hundred times more people that love it and it puts a smile on their face and it brightens their day. But there's nothing, you know, if you want to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing, you know. So no matter what, if you're doing something that rocks the boat or creates waves, regardless of what it is, there's going to be people that are against it or look down upon it, you know. Totally. Me personally, um, I think we're, enter we're entering a phase now where women have the absolute power on everything. Uh, if you look at power of social media, for instance, you know, the tables are turning dramatically. 
Um, just look at the amount of female strip clubs in Oregon versus the amount of male strip clubs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Look at the amount of direct messages women receive in their Instagram mailbox or Facebook mailbox versus men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, women are, I've been under the assumption that they've been controlling things the entire time, but now it's above the surface. And, right. you know, we're seeing a female vice president, you know, we're seeing things. I mean, we almost had a woman president. I mean, yeah. That was a very realistic possibility not too long ago. And it can be again. And uh, I think as time progresses, we're going to see that. Um, and you... I'm off work. And, and I think that my agenda uh, falls in line with that agenda completely. And I think that me personally is the most feminist situation imaginable. Yeah. You consider yourself very pro-women, obviously. Yes. Yeah, without um... women, it would be nothing. Without women, I wouldn't be here physically on earth. Without women, I wouldn't have a job that I love. Without women, I would be alone in my house every day, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without anyone to take care of me and love me. So across the board, you know, I owe everything I have and everything I will ever have to women. I'm incredibly appreciative of that. I'm curious, and, and I don't want to keep you too long. I know we're, we're getting near the end of time here, but, uh, and forgive me for not having been to a number of your events or having not been to a number of your events, I'm, do you, how do you feel about like the, let's say body positivity movement, if we're going to call it that and uh, various presentations of the female body on stage and stripping and, and what have you? I mean, I'm all for it, obviously. I mean, that's what the, you know, my next events, Miss TNA, you know, yep. and, uh, West and, you know, care booty, motor booty, vagina pageant. I'm a hundred percent on board with body positivity, you know, in all its shapes, you know, yep. whether it be transgender, you know, yep. uh, whether it be, um, older women, you know, like whatever have, it is. Do you have trans women uh, that have been as part of your events? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. We actually had a trans performer at Polarotica this last year. Cool. Uh, from Kit Kat Club. Wow, wow. She actually made, she made it to the finals. She was, she could have actually, um, I think she could have won. Uh, she was a very, she is a very talented performer. And yeah. Yeah, cool. It's the direction things are going. My other question about in this respect, in this regard, is how does your is it fiance or wife? You're not married yet, right? Yeah, or... yeah no, 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 I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I heard to set the date, but yeah, okay. Okay, and you've been for engaged. I saw on your Instagram you've been engaged for a little bit now. Um, congratulations! Yeah, Very exciting. Um, how does uh, what are her thoughts about all the work that you, the work you do? Obviously, she knows you in this field, so it's not you know scary to her. But how does yeah, she feel no. about it? She's supportive of it. Um, yeah. She's been instrumental to help me, like being by my side during a lot of these events when I need help and uh, need guidance and uh, just any kind of feedback, someone to vent to, things like that. So yeah. I'd say she's 100% supportive of it. I think she would prefer me not to do so many things, you know, to where I would have more time to, to spend with her. But I think all, you know, overall she knows that I'm just doing what I love and following my dream and my, my inspiration. So, um, you know, she's she's got my back with that. Sounds like her complaints are not the field in which you work. It's how much you work. Yeah. <laughs> You're a workaholic. Uh, yeah. I consider myself to be a workaholic for sure. I think I that, mean, uh, I wouldn't be in the position I am if I didn't have a sickening work ethic. And, uh, and if you look at it, I really don't have any competition at all. I have a monopoly on all, uh, adult uh, competitions and events in the state. And yeah. there's a reason. Yeah, you're always. I'm always reading about you in the news, and it feels like Willamette Week is always doing something on you too. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
All right. So my last two things that I always ask everybody here, because Portland is such an awesome food town and I'm a huge foodie myself. I always ask people what their three favorite restaurants are or three restaurants you'd recommend. So I don't know if you got a chance to think about that or not. I did. Okay. Uh, but I don't need a chance because I already know. What the- <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, by far my all-time favorite restaurant and always my number one Portland restaurant is Ringside Steakhouse. Classic. Classic. Um, um, if for nothing else, I mean, it, it's the perfect steakhouse, but more importantly, it's the only uh, high caliber steakhouse we have in the state that's genuinely Portland. Everywhere else, Ruth Chris, El Gaucho, these are chains that originated from other states and kind of evaded Portland, Morton's as well. Uh, totally. Ringside is only 100% true, coming up on like 100 years here in a little bit. Yes, uh, I love this answer. I love this answer. This is a great answer. <laughs> uh, you're talking about best Portland restaurants, I have to say that. Yeah. Now there's the problem uh, after that is there's a million other restaurants that I could recommend and of all different varieties and walks of, of life. But uh, if I'm gonna give two other recommendations, I'm gonna say uh, it's not necessarily a restaurant, but I love it very much. Hele Pele. I um, love that place. <laughs> what do you do? You have a drink that you like there? Uh, I like them all. Um, I mean, you kick them around with the mai tai, but. Uh, there's just so many drinks. Uh, personally, I like um, the Volcano Bowl because they Classic. set the volcano off when you order it. Yeah, that place is awesome. I love it. It's expensive, but I love it so much. So. Yeah, it's worth every penny for sure. Totally, yeah. And then, and then I'm going to go with uh, kind of a lesser known or maybe maybe more known, depending on where you stay at. But uh, I'm, I'm really feeling Mike's driving right now. Oh, yeah. The- I actually have not been there. I know it, but I've not been there. So what do you like about it? Uh, just it's your classic all-American uh, vintage hamburger joint. Yeah, and uh, it's you know we get a lot of love for Burgerville, In-N-Out Burger. You know it's kind of creeping up here, but uh, ultimately a Portland institution. Mike's driving multiple locations. They just opened up another one in Tigard, um, but it's just really good quality food, and uh, yeah. they have a really wide menu, and it's just you can tell that the love is there. So I also. I was, you're a true Portlander at heart. You're trying to prioritize the the smaller, independent, local places. You're like the, the Portland. I love it. That's that's the Portland spirit there. I love that. Absolutely. Um, and if there was one person you'd want to hear on the podcast that you don't know a lot about, one Portlander that you'd want to hear more about, who might you pick? I was thinking about this a lot, and uh, there's a lot of names, but ultimately, the one that I'm going to name is because it's never been done before, and uh, I don't know if it ever will be. But it's Frank Falacci. Frank Falacci. Tell me who that is. A lot of people might not recognize that name, but uh, yeah. Frank is actually a legendary uh, club and business owner in Portland. He started Exotic Magazine, founded it in 1993. He now owns or co-owns Dante's Kit Kat Club, oh, shit. Lucky Devil, Devil's Point, Sassy's, Star Theater, Rialto, Jack London. And so on All and so on. <laughs> wow. He's, so he's a friend of yours. Well, I, I consider him my friend. Uh, we, we worked to, for each other a long time. We, we butted heads many, many times over things. Over, <laughs> I think it was kind of hard to see my vision at, early on, you know, so it was easy yeah. to kind of not appreciate what I was doing at the time. But uh, he just came around, and I consider him my friend. And I still work for him. I DJ every Sunday at X, which is his club. And I do events at multiple, you know, I do events at Dante's and Kit Kat Club and other clubs as well. Right. Um, I just, um, that's a, that's a legend um, in the flesh. And 
you know, unlike Trey Shannon, who owns Voodoo Donuts and other legends in Portland, he is relatively low key and keeps to himself. And uh, I just know if he was ever interviewed one day, it would be very, very interesting and very, uh, I mean, the stories he has. I'm sure. Just amazing. And yeah. Uh, but he's just so set to his ways. I doubt that he would ever do an interview or anything like that. But I would just love to hear it if he did. Yeah, cool. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll work on him and see what I can see what I can do. So, I appreciate it, Dick. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. This is awesome. It's really fun to hear your story. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast, man. Yeah, definitely. I'll let you know when the podcast drops, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you around. Yeah, anytime, man. You're always always welcome to be VIP at any events I do, man. You got my thank number. You. Let me know, and uh, if you ever need anything else, I'm right here, and I'm, I'll have my shit more in order if we ever do another. <laughs> it's all good. I got it. It's like a real pleasure to talk with you. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you oh. so much, man. Cool. All right, have a good one. All right, you too, man. Bye bye. And that was DJ Dick Hennessy. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dick. Um, hope y'all. Hopefully, y'all enjoyed the episode, um, and we'll see you next week with another new episode of People of Portland. Bye.